Hello, hello, welcome to Sustainable 242. Welcome yourself all to Sustainable 242. Hope you're doing all right, old chum. And look, let's start with a bit of solidarity to anyone out there who's listening from places that are going through it at the moment um, and anyone who's been affected by it. We know these are tricky times. So we are Sustainable. We are your friendly little weekly environment podcast, isn't we all? Yes. All about people and the planet and why, despite everything going to shit, we can still have a little bit of a chuckle and a think about some things, yes? Yes. And what are we going to be having a chuckle and a think, despite it all, about today, Oh, Well, we're going to be having a chuckle and a think about uh, people who are winning and kicking ass. Uh, and in specificity, 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 that one. Yeah. Uh, yeah. In particular, we're going to be talking to the wonderful Tessa Khan. Now, Tessa is the director of Uplift, um, fantastic new-ish organisation, kind of trying to kill the oil and gas industry. My words, not hers. Uh, and uh, but also a climate lawyer, um, and I suppose most impressively, someone who has listened to Sustainable before. Yes, Tessa wrote to us a few years ago and said, "Can I come on?" And we were like, "Yeah, yeah, sure, we'll get you on one day." Well, that's today. That day has <laughs> come. So yeah, we had a really, really, really top chat with Tessa all about we were going to get her on anyway and obviously given recent events which have got a lot of fossil fuel related stuff at the heart of them this conversation's taken on a new dynamic so we talked about Russia and Ukraine and what it means to be a climate campaigner when it's obvious that oil and gas are behind a lot of what's going on. We talked about people who say that all we need to do is frack, frack, frack and drill, drill, drill. And are they right? Are they in Hoffs? And what, if we're not going to do that, should be done about people's energy bills? Oh, and we talked about how fun it is to sue people. Yes, exactly. Uh, that was, as you say, that was going to be the original sort of premise of the chat. The law, doing stuff on the law. But yeah even bigger and more relevant than just that uh now just the usual disclaimers uh we do both work for environment charities so does tessa uh but these are very much our views so if you've got any beef with anything we say take it up with the people for whom we work no take it up with us don't take it up <laughs> with the people for whom we work that's that that bit's Please crucial don't. Please get that bit right. Yes. And look, we would normally say a thing at this point. We're going to say that thing. We're going to say a different thing, aren't we, Al? We are, yeah. Uh, look, there are a lot of people doing a lot of amazing work on the ground in Ukraine. And if you wanted to bung in some cash, give them a bit of support, uh, you can do so. And it would be great. Uh, I'm not going to list them all out here because that's a bit difficult to do. I'm just going to put it all in the show notes uh, for the podcast episode. So go on our website. Uh, find this episode look in the notes and it'll be in your iTunes notes and everything like that um, and just you can click from there uh, to organisations doing great work Should we get on and talk to Tessa I think the first thing we should ask her is how does she get into all of this here saving the planet nonsense in the first place So, Tessa, hello. Thank you for coming on Sustainable. We have, we've been trying to get you on for ages. <laughs> would, would not, would not come on. Three years we've been trying. <laughs> That's your side of the story. Very convenient. Yes. Others might see it differently. Wow. Tessa, wrote, Tessa wrote to us. She wrote to us three years ago and she said, Oi, can I come on your podcast? And we were like, yeah, yeah, for sure. We'll get you on. And we did. So, <laughs> we did. Um, Tessa, when did, tell us a bit about you. Like, when did you 
first start giving a shit about climate change? Kind of assuming you do give a shit about climate change and it's not all an elaborate bluff, but when did you first, when did you first get involved? That is a safe assumption. Um, so I started out my career as a human rights lawyer um, and campaigner, and I was doing that work internationally for a number of years, and it included uh, working a stint at a war crimes tribunal um, in The Hague and then going on to do more post-conflict sort of justice-related stuff. And in the course of that work, I became increasingly aware that actually a significant chunk of armed conflicts are driven by conflict over natural resources, um, something like 40% of um, certainly internal armed conflicts have a link to disputes over natural resources. And obviously, you know, environmental degradation is only going to exacerbate that um, as a source of, of conflict and tension. And so that, you know, even though my perspective has always been kind of solidly human rights focused, I was increasingly aware of the connections with the environment and ecosystems. Um, and then I, I spent a few years working in Asia. Um, and while I was there, Typhoon Haiyan hit the Philippines. So this was in 2013, which was at that point, I think the strongest um, typhoon to ever make landfall and killed a lot of people, displaced even more, and was categorically supercharged by climate change. Um, and that attribution happened quite quickly. So I started to twig about the way in which climate change, you know, and I was working on a range of human rights issues connected to sustainable development and equality at the time, you know, the, the threat that climate change poses to our realisation of all of those goals and that not only does it threaten to undermine them but it threatens to set us back decades, especially in countries in the global south. Um, and my family is also uh, from Bangladesh. A lot of them still live in Bangladesh, and obviously that's a country that's pretty vulnerable to the impacts of climate change. So it just became increasingly clear to me that actually the biggest systemic threat we face to the enjoyment of our human rights and to development and equality more broadly is, is climate change. And if I was serious about working on human rights, um, then it was impossible to not engage with that. So that was the kind of start of my pivot. Well, the conflict in Ukraine and the sanctions on Russia have led to another surge in the cost of oil and gas. Traders are said to be struggling to sell Russian oil, even at a discount, because of difficulties in shipping and the payment process. Energy experts in the UK are warning that the cost of the average household dual fuel bill could rise by at least £700 by the time the new energy cap comes into force in the autumn. There's rather a lot of stuff going on at the moment, you've probably noticed. Um, and, uh, you know, need to not be like insensitive about it, but... How do you, I mean, you were saying there that, uh, you know, conflict is, is inextricably linked to environmental stuff, resources specifically. But like, how do you feel about the the noises that people are starting to make about uh, what is going on in Ukraine, the war in Ukraine, invasion by Russia, uh, and sort of saying, oh, kind of energy angle to this, climate angle to this. Is, is that kind of, 
is it relevant? Is it crass? Is it super relevant? Is it the main thing? Like, because because I don't know how、mm. I feel about it. Basically, <laughs> is a long way of saying I don't I don't know how I feel about all of that. If you could tell Ol how to feel, how should I feel? <laughs> start start with what feelings are. <laughs> I love telling people what to feel, so I'm very happy <laughs> to to tick that box.、Um, so actually, I think you know the nice thing about 2022 is that I think the climate movement, and obviously I'm speaking from the perspective of of people in the UK and and Europe,、um, but they've been pretty careful to take their lead from what colleagues in Ukraine are actually saying. So. Um, I think there's been a pretty clear signal that a, I mean, obviously, and this is, I think, the top line message that people have been putting out. You know, this is a war that's being driven by an aggressive authoritarian government. That is, that is the cause,、um, and there's no question that that's the sort of principal driver.、Um, but that, but that the conflict is fundamentally underwritten. By oil and gas, insofar as the Russian economy, you know, fifty percent of I think Russian GDP is tied to its oil and gas exports. Fifty percent. Yeah, something. I think it might be forty、wow. or fifty percent. But you know, it's it's in the top three oil and gas exporters globally.、Um, you know, the Russian economy otherwise isn't in amazing shape. So as far as filling up Putin's war chest goes, oil and gas is absolutely you know the thing that. From a strategic perspective, if you can choke that off, then you will have a material effect on the ability of the Russian government to wage war, and that is, I think, a message that's also been echoed by by colleagues in Ukraine who are keen for people to sanction the Russian government and cut off their economic ability to continue to finance the conflict. So I think you know, and and I guess if you also place this conflict in the context of Other twenty-first century and twentieth-century wars. I mean, this isn't the first time that oil, the desire for well, oil, quite fossil fuels, <laughs>、yeah. has driven a conflict. So you know, I think in some ways we need to talk about the kind of geopolitical implications of our dependency on fossil fuels. This is the latest manifestation of, of that, and as I said, it's clearly not driven by an oil grab, but it is. Inextricably connected to oil and gas, insofar as that's what is enabling、um, Russian military power at the moment. And we sometimes talk, I think, in the broad climate movement, as if geopolitics should be ignored and governments should just jolly well get on and fix climate change <laughs> and get kind of surprised when things like big climate talks happen. When governments are like, "Now you know what? I'm not." Going to fix climate change because of all this other stuff I've got going on, and then like, I guess the implication of what you're saying is actually no, like climate is in it is the same thing. Like the things that are causing climate change are the same things that affect global power and how it works, right? Yeah, exactly. And I think you're in a pretty privileged position if you can detach your climate advocacy from those broader historical dynamics, which have really shaped people's lives and their countries. You know, fates in you know for most of the twentieth century. You know, oil and gas have played such a huge part in shaping empire and conflict and and colonization. So I think, yeah, this is in some ways the latest manifestation of that. Back in the in the UK, we've got some、uh, some Inhofs. Oh, Inhofs, Dave, we need to mention this. 
Oh, yes. Jim Inhofe of Inhofe has, uh, well, he said he's going to retire early. Yes, and early. He, he didn't say in his statement that it was because of us, but he didn't need to. Uh, right. So we're claiming that. Anyway, uh, <laughs> there have been some Inhofs in the UK Parliament saying that, oh, look, you know, uh, all of this high gas prices, high electricity prices, conflict making things worse, blah, blah, blah. This shows that what we need is British gas. Good old-fashioned, patriotic British gas. We should be doing more fracking. Uh, we should be getting more out of the North Sea because it's lovely Union Jack bedraggled gas. And we know that's nonsense. We've talked about that sort of stuff a lot on here before. You know that's nonsense. But just to sort of play devil's advocate, there is a there's a seductive quality to that argument, isn't there? If if you are on the you're an average punter watching the news, and someone says, "How about we stop getting our gas from Russia and instead get it from underneath Lancashire?" Like that that makes a certain amount of sense, doesn't it? Like, can you? Does it? <laughs> what do you think? I mean, I, I agree with you that intuitively it seems pretty appealing um, as a solution to the gas price crisis and, you know, in some way like sticking it to Russia. <laughs> um, but I guess, you know, there are a few things that people need to be clear about. The first is that we actually don't get that much um, oil or gas from Russia. So we, you know, our gas exports, are, Russia only accounts for less than 5% of what we, sorry, of what we import. In the UK, um, yeah. Into the UK, yeah. yeah, exactly. Obviously, that situation is quite different on continental Europe. Um, but more importantly, I think, you know, the, this is obviously the latest trigger, the conflict in the Ukraine is the latest trigger for a conversation about why we need to move off fossil fuels. But I think the massive gas price crisis that we've been experiencing regionally for the last few months was the first trigger, the fact that people's energy bills were increasing by, you know, 700 pounds when the price cap goes up. Um, and people were like, yeah, we should definitely be extracting more gas from the North Sea to, to deal with that. But the problem, I think, with that perspective is that, first of all, we don't set the price of gas domestically. We trade oil and gas that's extracted in the UK on international markets, and they're the ones that set the prices. So, you know, in September last year, when gas prices started to spike, that's also when exports of gas extracted in the UK also spiked. And that's because, to your point about Union Jack bedraggled, bedraggled? Yeah, yeah that's the exact okay, word they used. Yeah. It's, it's the wrong uh, word when you used it. It's still the wrong word, but let's but carry I, on. Yep. Yeah, I'm quoting you. So. <laughs> um, uh, UK oil and gas is that we don't own it. It's owned by multinational companies like uh, Shell Be and BP more patriotic, Tessa. How dare you? And they you? have... The, the bad news is they have no allegiance to the British public and they will sell their oil and gas wherever they can get the best price for it. Um, and so unless the UK government is in the mood to nationalise um, our oil and gas sector, which... Stranger things have happened, like, but, but not, sure. not, not yeah. yeah, not to give... Yeah, yeah that's right. Um, you know, we, we don't own that gas. It's not some... And I think the other really important thing to remember is that it is not some kind of abundant national asset in that the North Sea is a geologically complex basin that actually is mostly oil. So it's, you know, of kind of the remaining reserves, it's about 70% oil and 30% gas. Of that oil, we export about 80% of it. Um, huh. So it's not 
filling people's cars. It's not suitable for our refineries. Um, and similarly with gas, as I said, it's sold on international markets. We do consume some of it domestically, but it's really not up to us what the companies that dig it out of the ground do with it. And, you know, I think the the campaigning that's gaining steam against oil and gas extraction in the UK is really drawing attention to the way that if you're worried about affordability of energy or physical, you know, security of supply of oil and gas, then North Sea oil and gas just ain't going to make that much difference. So it's not our oil, and even if it was, we don't buy it. Well, it's very simple. I was playing murder in the dark in the cellar, and I was getting really bored. So I thought, I know, I'll crack the floor with my head. And when I did, this huge smell of oil came out. You know what it makes me think of? Fish. I shan't go into this, but it makes me think of the whole thing about fish, where there's all this, like, the fish, what we fish in what are supposed to be British fish, we don't bloody like, and we sell them to other people. Sounds like that. I suppose it's not the same. Right. Thanks, Dave. Um, <laughs> related, to what you, <laughs> related to what you were saying, as opposed to Dave's thing, which was not related, doesn't it... I mean, this is going to sound hopelessly naive, but doesn't oh, it make you cross... To see people on the telly, and when I say people, I mean like politicians promoting more fracking or North Sea drilling, because I imagine they know what you just said, right? Like they know the reality of how this stuff works. And yet they cynically go on telly and try and persuade people that fracking or drilling for North Sea oil is the solution to their rocketing fuel bills. And I know that's what politicians do, but doesn't that make you cross because it makes it makes me cross it's also like the fracking thing as well right like it's not like the government hadn't spent most of the last 10 years trying to frack everything the kingdom come and it didn't happen because people didn't want it like so the idea again that suddenly you can fix it yeah they must know that as well that people won't stand for it right yeah so i think what that comes down to is the power of the industry lobby which is another reason why we need to shut down oil and gas companies <laughs> because in the UK you know I mean certainly the relationship between the British state and the oil and gas industry has historically been incredibly close you know we were a majority shareholder I think in um, BP for some time and you know at various points have worked incredibly closely with the oil and gas sector um, and it continues to just have a ton of political access and those ties to the Conservative Party, but, you know, more broadly, I think, to the political establishment um, manifest in so many different ways. So it's access, it's the shares that P MPs own in oil and gas, it's the money that the industry gives to politicians. You know, it is, as it is in the US and other parts of the world, a drag on our ambition in terms of climate policy. It's just another reason, you know, even if you don't really believe that it's worth shutting down oil and gas fields because we're going to keep getting our oil and gas from elsewhere for as long as we need it or whatever, it's worth shutting it down just so that we can increase the quality of our public debate mm. on these issues and get rid of this incredibly toxic, privately focused and driven influence. So, all right then, okay, in a spirit of old-style devil's advocacy. What then is your... What's your solution then, eh? <laughs> eh? What would you do about my energy bill, Tessa? Make it good. Okay, so I think the first thing that I would do is, like, slap a massive tax on oil and gas companies that have just made 
a shitload of profit from escalating gas prices and now oil prices as well. So Shell and BP um, each made about, you know, 15 billion pounds in profit last year. It's a big number. Uh, yeah. It's a big number, yeah. And 15 billion pounds is roughly what it would take to cover the increase in household energy bills in the UK, oh. coincidentally. Mm, this, is, um, this is elegant. Yeah. So uh, those, and, and, you know, just to be clear, like when, when I say that it's, people call it a windfall tax and they refer to windfall profit. And what makes it a windfall profit is that it hasn't become more expensive to get the stuff out of the ground. It's just that global commodity prices have increased. So it's just extra cash that they're pocketing for absolutely no extra effort on their, or investment on their part. Um, And that's why, you know, we've, done it in the past in the UK. There was a windfall profit um, in the early, in 2011. George Osborne did that, um, a windfall tax rather. And so that, you know, the mechanism is there and it would be a really great way to offset people's energy bills. So, you know, to redistribute that significant wealth and those profits, you know, I'm sure when we see what their Q1 results in 2023 are, are going to be just as huge, if not even bigger given that oil and gas prices continue to increase. Over to you, Jessica. Thank you, Ben. This quarter, we've delivered strong results. We generated $11.1 billion of cash flow from operations, excluding working capital movements. Our adjusted earnings were $6.4 billion, mainly due to strong results in integrated gas. Um, So that's step number one. Step number two, I think, um, and this isn't going to sound all that original because lots of smart people are saying it, but I think this is the impetus, if ever there was one, to really maximise rollout of energy efficiency and renewables deployment. And the UK, as everyone knows, is way behind where it could be in terms of our housing stock. And um, there's a lot more that could be done in terms of investment in renewables that could really make a material difference to people's energy bills within the next couple of years. And this is This is a crisis, unfortunately, that is going to continue into 2023. You know, oil and gas prices aren't coming down anytime soon. So it's worth getting ahead of it. And like one of the problems, sorry, but one of the problems that that we've had for years and years is we know that, but people aren't doing it enough. And there's all sorts of reasons why not. But do you think the current moment is going to change public demand for getting a home insulated and getting a heat pump put in? Or is it too early to tell that? I mean, it's, it is too early to tell, but it does feel like this is a moment where, you know, the amount of pain that families across the UK are going to experience, it's like 22 million people will be pushed into fuel poverty um, as a result of these energy price increases. Like that is so palpable. I think it, it's such a clear illustration of how broken the system is um, and the true cost of our dependency on fossil fuels, that if this doesn't precipitate massive reforms of our, you know, energy systems and energy efficiency, then I'm not sure what will. I mean, I'd be surprised if there weren't really big protests, you know, in coming months because it's just an intolerable situation. People are making crazy, awful choices, you know, between their kids having the light on to be able to do their homework and being able to afford food. You're already seeing it, aren't you? Like like news programs are going to people's homes and, they're, you know, they're saying like, yeah, I put the heating on for half an hour once every couple of days just to, you know, get a tiny bit of warmth. But otherwise it's, 
you know, no food. And, it's, and that's mm. happening now already. And you know, the predictions are that next October there will be another rise and then going into winter it will be even more expensive. So it's, yeah, it's heartbreaking. Sorry, that's not a question. That's just me going, it's heartbreaking. Right, hello, Dave here, and I'm whispering so that Ol doesn't hear me. But what I've done is snuck into this episode of Babel just to give a little plug to my other podcast, Your Brain on Climate. It's all about human brains and how they work and don't work and how they think about the world and how what they think about the world is part of the climate crisis and how understanding the climate crisis means understanding human brains and how they work. And we come at things sideways, so we look at things you might think have nothing to do with climate change at all. But when you unpick it all, everything does. It's called Your Brain on Climate. It's available the same place you found the babble. I hope you like it. Please have a listen. Don't tell him I'm here. Oh, he's coming. Okay, bye. Your Brain on Climate. So can we sue people? Because you like suing people. Is there anyone we can <laughs> who, who sue? Who should we sue? Someone should be sued here and you Very should be good. doing the suing. I'm taking notes. By the end of this interview, I'm going to have worked out um, a commitment from you of who you're going to sue next. So. <laughs> no pressure. Um, yeah, I, that is a good question. I haven't really applied my mind to the question of who to well, sue. Come I feel on. like this. <laughs> <laughs> someone needs suing. Quickly. Sue, sue someone. I'm really, yeah, I really... I'm sorry to disappoint you, and I do feel like I've let everyone down. Um, but because the political solutions are so obvious, you know, and they are yet to be taken, and I feel like the kind of full scale of the campaign to force the government to take the obvious steps is yet to be unleashed. So I'm confident that we can do this before we get to litigation because the thing about litigation is it is kind of a last resort strategy. And I say that, you know, as someone who, who was a climate change litigator is, you know, a climate change lawyer. And so I'm not against it, but um, where possible, it's good not to go to court. Hmm. Um, it's just a pretty unpleasant process. Uh, it's pretty adversarial. The outcomes can feel really binary, like you win or you lose. I mean, I think litigation when done well, and obviously I like to think that I do do it well um, and my colleagues do, but, um, you know, it can it can have a huge political impact because you can use it to tell a great story. But um, it is, I think, you know, we are, I mean, obviously we're in kind of last resort times, but it feels like on this particular issue, there's lots, lots more to be done before we maybe start suing people. But it sounds so much fun. And also you're being very modest, like your your legal case that you brought in the Netherlands or the, on the appeal that you brought in the Netherlands. I think we talked about this all. I think we talked about this when it happened. Um, we did. Originally. Yeah, yeah long so, time certainly ago the now. appeal yeah. we talked about, yeah. So this was uh, maybe, well, me doing it. Um, you, you took a case which was brilliant and which was described as a groundbreaking, a groundbreaking success, not just legally, but for driving real world action on climate change. What was that case, please? And can you do more of that because it sounds fun. Um, sh I can tell you a bit about it and then maybe we can have a separate conversation about whether or not it was fun. <laughs> <laughs> um, so that was a case that was initiated by um, a Dutch organisation called Agenda um, and it was in, they first filed the case in 2013 and it was 
groundbreaking in that it was a case that was about forcing the Dutch government to adopt a more ambitious emissions reduction target for 2020. So the Dutch, contrary, I think, to popular perception, um, are not super green, like not super climate friendly and um, had a really weak kind of their, their trajectory for emissions reductions for 2020 was way below um, what, for example, the IPCC suggested rich countries needed to be doing by 2020, which was a 25 to 40% reduction in emissions compared to a 1990 baseline. Um, and so they asked the court to order the government to reduce emissions by 25 to 40% compared to a 1990 baseline by 2020. Um, and they argued that on the basis that if the government failed to do that, they would be knowingly um, violating the human rights of Dutch citizens and inflicting harm on Dutch society. And they won, um, contrary to, I think, um, a lot of expectation. And I randomly was in touch with those Dutch lawyers in 2015, just before the first, you know, they won at first instance. And, um, and then when they won, I was like, well, that was exciting. Can I play with you guys? <laughs> Will you let me join your team? And, um, and I think, you know, that was uh, just after the Paris Agreement um, was concluded. And, you know, it was a landmark case because it was the first time a court had ordered a government to reduce a country's greenhouse gas emissions by an absolute amount. Um, and it was, you know, the first time that people had made those arguments on the basis of the human rights impacts that a failure to reduce emissions will inevitably have. Um, so that was kind of inspiration for loads of people to start doing that around the world. And it was fun. Deny everything, Baldrick. <laughs> Are you Private Baldrick? No. <laughs> I, I want to ask um, a, another question, which is a bit rude. Um, is it true what lefty people say on Twitter? No. Uh, <laughs> no, this is not fair. Uh, it's important as, you know, what's the age where we inevitably start voting Tory, Dave? You're coming close to it, aren't you? Uh, um, I'm very close very to close that Very close age. to it, yeah. So I'm, it I'm aware that I'm getting into sort of centrist dad territory, so I'm trying very hard to keep conscious of what not centrist dad people are saying yeah, you gotta fight that I'll thank you yes i'm trying i'm trying my best anyway some of the not centrist dad people are saying hang on a minute all of this the climate movement getting excited about lawyers sort of steaming in and taking their highfalutin cases to court and we've seen that in the uk with like the heathrow challenge or um other challenges about government policy or whatever all of this stuff is actually just kind of elite people, in this case lawyers, saying elite things in elite institutions um, and appealing to the authority of these institutions. And it's not, it's not doing the thing that we have to do, which is people-powered movement building, actually disrupting these institutions because these are the institutions that have maintained all the systems that are driving us to oblivion. Um, that's what the lefty people say. And I some have a little kind people. of some lefty, some people. lefty people, not not all of them, but some lefty people say that. And there's a little bit of me which gets very defensive and kind of no, no, but I don't know if it's right. Are they right? Are you part of the problem, Tessa? 
Good question, Al. Thanks. It was another short one, you'll notice. <laughs> bedraggled. Yes. Um, it was a bedraggled, <laughs> bedraggled question. Um, so, you know, I, I feel like this is a um, an unsatisfying answer insofar as it's not playing into the conflict that I feel like you're maybe trying to generate. <sighs> but um, I you. think that... Um, <laughs> In short, we kind of need all of the above and I think most lawyers realise that and that's why I'm hopeful that, you know, climate litigation, environmental litigation more broadly is starting to become a bit more savvy about the need to integrate litigation into broader campaigns and an advocacy and movement building strategy that means that, you know, it's not just about what happens in court um, it's about telling a story about who is responsible for the mess that we got into and how they've known about what they need to do to get us out of it um, and to really draw attention to a particular issue. And, you know, ultimately, I guess the third runway didn't get built, right? So that litigation um, has been successful, I think, in in many ways in in, in generating you know, kind of controversy that goes beyond what just happens, you know, in court, which, as I said, can seem really binary on the day that you get a decision, a win or a loss. Um, so, you know, and I think with all of the big examples of social or political transformation that happen, there are lawyers that can point to the role that they played in it and claim that they were the ones hmm. that were responsible for progress. And then there, there are people who can point to all sorts of other tactics that also contributed to it. And I guess, you know, with the civil rights movement in the US, for example, um, you could tell a story about how important litigation was for striking down, you know, segregation or, you know, Jim Crow laws and showing that they were unconstitutional and you could tell the story that way. Or you could talk about the massive public movement and the boycotts and the marches on Washington and everything else that clearly shifted public opinion, you know, and it's usually both happening in tandem and certainly with something that's the scale of the challenge that we're facing, I think we just need to throw everything at the wall. And if lawyers are good at litigating and they want to spend their time going to court and assuming that there aren't major sort of risks associated with that, then why not, you know? And is, is it um, also the case that like, well, court judges, I suppose, and the courts are influenced themselves by what's going on outside? Because they, they sort of present the whole... Um, the the world of litigation is a very sort of you know fact based um, thing insulated from what's going on. But certainly lawyers have said to me that's not true. Like what is going on, public opinion matters. The sort of pressure that they might be feeling with the attention around a case matters, even though they don't say it matters. Is that your kind of experience? Do you think that's Sure. Yeah, I mean, judges are human, you know. I mean, there's lots of evidence, I think, to challenge that <laughs> conclusion. But I think no, ultimately they some have... Somehow human, in part. <laughs> right. Yeah. They read newspapers, they have kids, they, you know, they are not insulated from all of those other dynamics. And so I think actually good litigation kind of leans into those opportunities um, and sees it as, a, you know, opportunity that's as political as it is legal in many ways. (laughs) 
So, I wanted to talk a bit about um, what happens when you win and you have managed to shut down all of the oil production in the UK and all of the people who have jobs in places like Aberdeen and all of the people that make the chips for the people that have jobs uh, don't have a job no more. Um, what are you going to recommend happens there? So we're talking about the concept of a just transition, right? And um, I'm interested in, uh, well, yeah, what do you do about that? Massive problem, right? Yeah, it is. It's a huge challenge. And I think that's why, I mean, certainly, you know, Uplift and a lot of our partners have made a focus on that question of what happens to the oil and gas workforce and what happens to those communities and the supply chain as central to the work that we do as how do we shut down oil and gas fields and the expansion of production. Um, and I think there's a very strong principled reason for doing that. I mean, obviously, you know, these people through no fault of their own have ended up in high carbon industries that don't have a future in a kind of livable world. Um, and so we absolutely shouldn't punish them for where they've ended up. Um, but I think, you know, there's also a really pragmatic reason for making sure that there is a just transition and that is that if we don't get this right and if there is real social backlash to our attempts to transition away from oil and gas, then that's going to make everything else we've got to do to decarbonise the economy a lot harder. And obviously the legacy of closing um, down coal mines in this country is something that people are so sensitive to in terms of how, how badly it can be done, mm. um, that the imperative to do it well is really strong. And, you know, I think we and our partners like Platform, for example, and Friends of the Earth Scotland are doing an amazing job of working side by side with oil and gas workers to understand what kind of support they need to transition out of the workforce because they see the writing on the wall. You know, there have been surveys done that show that a majority of them recognise that the oil and gas industry doesn't have a future and they would like to move out of it if they could be supported to do that. And so, you know, at the moment, if you want to move, for example, from offshore oil and gas to offshore wind, which is a kind of obvious lateral move in a lot of instances, given the where the industry is and the skills overlap. Good for people um, who you don't like the land, I suppose. Just... <laughs> exactly, exactly. Yeah. But you have to recertify in a lot of the same skills, actually, it, you know, between those two industries. And so, you know, Platform and others have been advocating for what they're calling an offshore passport. So you just have one set of certifications that allows you to move between those industries. And that is that is real solidarity, I think, with, with that workforce. Um, and it's the beginning, I think, of a much more developed journey that we're on in terms of understanding what what that community really needs it's empathy isn't it it seems it, we've talked about empathy quite a bit on this oh yeah that's that thing where you care about other people we've tried so many times to to get this in your head Dave but let's just there are some things you're never going to be good at and Fine. that's just one of them don't worry about it but yeah I think Catherine Hayhoe was talking about it as well we it seems so key to all of these things if you don't you know, if we, if we just sit here as a climate movement saying this is what needs to happen, you people over there, and our thing is more important than your thing, we're so stuffed. But what you're describing is an inherently empathetic kind of standpoint, I think. Yeah, and I think it's, you know, I guess as a someone whose background was in human rights before I moved into climate, and that was my kind of entry point for getting into climate, I was very worried about what it was going to do to people. You know, I mean, I also really love all of the nature 
and things, but you know, mostly I'm yeah. all of the nature. Some and of it. Things. <laughs> <laughs> What's your favourite thing? <laughs> What's your favourite nature? Can we, Top can ten nature. Away from this line of questioning. <laughs> That's okay. Back to the humans. Um, yeah, I mean, I just think it's such a it's such an obvious opportunity as well to build a real movement. You know, a truly intersectional movement that are all fighting for a planet that we can live on where people have decent jobs, you know. That's something we can all get behind. Um, and it would be just a huge opportunity squandered, I think, if we didn't do that with real commitment and integrity um, and not in a way that's kind of, you know, tokenistic, which I think maybe in the past the climate movement's gestures to the sort of labour movement have been. So I know you've got views on this, and particularly given the state of the world right now, this seems pertinent, which is that there are an awful lot of white men being dicks around the place. When it comes Two to... Them here. Right. When it comes to climate change and global security and oil companies and, like, climate denial and stuff, it's always white men, isn't it? And is it too simplistic to say that if we had fewer white men making the decisions, we might be a bit better off planet-wise, do you think? Love that question. Love it coming from two white men. Thank you for your service. Um, so, in short, like, yes, uh, is the simple answer, but I think, you know, I mean, it's not, it's not quite that simple, but what I will say is that the, the dominant systems that we have at the moment, kind of social and economic, um, have benefited white men, you know, insofar as they are predicated on white supremacy and patriarchy and so on. And so everything that's gotten us to this point in the climate crisis, you know, have, has been a set of interlocking systems and structures that work to the benefit of white men. And so as the incumbents, you know, there's not a whole lot of incentive for you guys to move things on. Um, and also because of the way that those systems operate, you're also, I should stop making it so personal, I apologise. Um, but, totally you know, fair. I think <laughs> white If you could direct men, it mostly at all, that would be appreciated. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, they're insulated from the impacts of climate change. Um, and we know that in that, you know, it's empirically true that women and girls and communities in the global south are the ones who are most vulnerable to the impacts of, of the climate crisis. So that is, I think, all of the ways in which the current systems benefit you guys um, and you're therefore not that motivated to challenge it. Um, and I think there's also, you know, evidence to show that, you know, women tend to worry more about sustainability in terms of the kind of consumer choices that they make and so on. Um, and, and other stuff, I mean, more anecdotal, but like, you know, the countries that did the best during the pandemic had female leadership and that sort of stuff. And, but I, you know, I think what I would say though, is that there are definitely limits to representational politics, you know? So uh, I guess like, Cough, pretty Patel. Cough. No. <laughs> Is that her full name? <laughs> She's quite um, something, isn't she? Yeah, but, you know, I, that's just to say, and obviously in this government there are, you know, people of colour who are in senior positions and women in senior positions and, 
they're not that great on things like climate change or human rights or equality or fairness. Um, so that's so, yeah, so as I say, there are limits to just kind of kicking out all the white men and replacing them uh, with women of colour. Um, but I think it's really important to understand why it is that how that privilege operates to to really, I think, undermine ambition and incentives to change. Tessa, thank you so much for coming on here and telling us about all your work. How can people find out about you and Uplift and keep in touch and all that sort of stuff? And if you've got anything you want to plug and etc. Great. Um, well, uh, I think the best place for people to go is maybe to the Stop Cambo campaign page. Oh, we oh yeah, we didn't about ask about that. Yeah. Uh, uh, tell it, us about uh, Stop Cambo. 30 seconds, go. <laughs> Great. So Cambo is a massive oil field um, West of Shetland in the North Atlantic, uh, 170 million barrels of oil or thereabouts that would be extracted by Shell, everyone's favourite cartoon villain oil company, um, and Sicker Point Energy. And we can't have any new oil and gas fields if we're going to stay within 1.5 degrees. The world's kind of experts, energy, climate are clear that we already have more oil and gas in the pipeline in existing reserves uh, than we can burn if we're going to stay within a safe climate limit. So opening up a new oil and gas field in 2022 is a horrible idea and it's one of dozens of new oil and gas fields that the UK government is considering approving mm. in the next few years. Um, and last year, because people made such a fuss about it, um, Shell and Sycapoint Energy paused their involvement or progress on the project but it's not dead um, and certainly given current dynamics and current stupid rhetoric coming out of the government and industry about the need to open up more oil and gas fields um, I, we certainly can't be complacent about it so I would love it if people joined us and it is the beginning of um, a lot more campaigning against new oil and gas expansion in the UK. Right, that is just about it for another episode of Babble. One of our sort of palindronic episodes. 242, 242, 242. I hadn't noticed the significance, yes. Very good. We'll have another one in 10 episodes. Yep. Time, we? So, yes, very good. Um, thank you, Tessa, so much for coming on here. Do follow the work that Tessa's doing and get your opinions off of her, which we intend to do from now on. Thank you to the legendary Dickie Moore for the music that starts, ends and intertwinkles this podcast and to the magnificent Arthur Stovall for the logo, What Adorns Us, our website, our stuff and our T-shirts. What, if you're in the mood, you can get at www.sustainababble.fish. Now, if you would like to get in touch and tell us uh, how wrong we are about things or how right we are about things or things right. you would like us to talk about, which lots of people do, thank you for those, you can email hello at sustainababble.fish. You can tweet us at the Babble Wagon or you can just search Facebook for Sustainababble. Yes, and please do give us a rating on your podcast medium of choice. Maybe you could comment on Ol's use of the word bedraggled and whether or not you think it was correct, appropriate or just wrong. It was wrong, I think. It was just wrong, but wasn't it? I don't know the word I meant. I, I meant sort of like wearing. Draped? Bedraped. Bedecked. 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 
bedecked yeah. in the Union Jack. That's what you meant to say, isn't it? Mm, sorry. Right, I'm off, Ol. I shall see you next week. Until then, stay well and stay safe, old fruit. And I shall see you next week, all right? Bye! Bye! Bye.